Welcome to the Grace Vineyard Podcast, where we are building growing communities of worshipers who are becoming like Christ, empowered to do His work. We hope you enjoy this message. Those of you that are kind of new, or you haven't been here in the last few weeks, I want you to know that we are studying a book of the Bible together, and um, it's important that we all kind of know where we are in the book of the Bible that we're studying, and I'll do a little bit of review, but I, I need to see who's paying attention. What book of the Bible are we studying? Oh, good class. Good congregation. So first, John, who wrote it? Who's John? Did someone say first, John? <laughs> John oh, someone said the beloved. So he's one of the apostles, one of those 12 He's also one of the three, kind of an inner circle, right? Peter, James, and John, really tight with Jesus. He's also like one of the one inner circle, the one who called himself, I'm the one that Jesus loved. <laughs> as if, as, I think, I, like he's like, I'm, I'm Jesus' favorite, just so you know, I'm going to write it in the Bible <laughs> for, for people everywhere. Do you, think, do you think people are harassing him in heaven right now about that? He, he also, did you ever notice in his gospel, when he says they ran to the tomb, he says, yeah, but I got there first. <laughs> He's so funny. I mean, he put it in the Bible. Peter and, James, Peter and John ran to the tomb, but John got there first. Just, you know, I'm faster. <laughs> he's so funny. Well, he's so, how old is he when he writes the book? Nine, he's probably like in his 90s, Bob. He's like in his 90s, and he's thriving in life. By the way, um, I don't know if you know, just in church history, this isn't in the Bible, this is just the history we have. Uh, the emperor tried to kill him. It's reported by, you know, he talks about the anointing and the oil. So kind of in a sadistic play on words, the emperor, was that Nero? I'm not positive on the emperor. Tried to have him boiled in oil to kill him, and he wouldn't boil. Like, he, he just didn't die. That's, that's, the, that's the history. So then they um, banished him, exiled him to a little island called Patmos, and that's where he wrote the Revelation, the last book of the Bible. So he's this old guy who's been with Jesus. He's got a unique perspective, and that's why I said all that. It's good to know he's got a unique perspective on living with God. He's like a grandfatherly figure now in the faith, and he's calling us together at his feet to give us really important instruction. Now, so we've called this series Thriving for a Lifetime, because here's this guy, probably in his 90s, at the end of the first century, all the other, all the other apostles have died, um, and he is still thriving, passionately loving the Lord. Now, last week, we talked about three things, and I said these are like three strands that are braided together to make a strong rope. Three strands for a thriving life. Does anyone remember any of those strands? Ooh, you didn't tell you there was going to be a test, did you? Okay. Let's see, is anyone going to take a risk? See if you... Oh, koinonia, what a weird word. Isn't that pronounced gunanija? So the first strand, good job, whoever thought that. Oh, I should stop and tell you this. If you didn't know, when I get up here and teach you, it's not because I love to hear myself talk. I actually have something in mind. 
We're called to make disciples, and I have the unique calling to do it as a pastor of a church. It's my hope and my anticipation that if I do this well and you do your part well, that when you leave here, you can teach someone else what I taught you. And I'm try- that's why I often repeat things over and over and over. If you didn't know that, I want you to be able to go from here, grab a friend and say, hey, let's read 1 John together. Open up, read the first chapter, and be able to teach it. Last um, Saturday, not yesterday, but the week before, Kent had a, led a group of people. Paul was there. A bunch of people went down to um, the area outside the Regal Theater and said, let's worship Jesus outside and see what happens and talk with people as they come around. It was very cool. Uh, thanks for doing that, Kent. Just amazing and bold and wonderful. Um, and a group of ladies who were Christians, they were older ladies. They weren't in their 90s, but they were older ladies from the L.A. area, and they couldn't believe we were doing this. Michael Apokowski grabs them, and guess what he did? He taught them exactly what we've been teaching here, and I was so happy to hear, okay, we're making disciples. And he came back saying, I made three new disciples. <laughs> and what he did was he said, have you ever heard of a holy hello? They were like, what's that? He said, it was what we're doing right now. When we say hello to you and perhaps the Lord comes into the situation and we um, bring a normal hello into a holy situation where we're doing, having a God talk now, maybe we pray for you. And then he taught them how he prays for people. And they said, we can do this. And it multiplied. All that to say, disciples, listen up and learn. Okay, the first strand was, someone said it over here, koinonia. Koinonia is a um, Greek word, and we said the Greek word, even though we're English speakers, because the English words that are translated for us to understand it just don't do it justice. Koinonia is often translated to the word fellowship in English, but fellowship sounds like we're just hanging around. And koinonia is a deep, intimate communion, sharing of life, sharing of purpose, sharing of worship, sharing of resources. It's sharing life, much bigger than just party, much bigger than potluck. Koinonia is the way John opens his, um, his letter. He says this, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes. I'm an eyewitness. I've seen, I've heard, I've touched Jesus which we have looked at with our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life, the life appeared. We've seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard, so that you may also have koinonia with us, and our koinonia is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We We write this so that our joy would be complete. The first strand for a thriving life is deep, intimate fellowship with each other, with God. If we have that one strand, a lot of good stuff's going to take place. Can anyone remember a second strand? It's going to be harder. Shannon, good job, living in the light. What? It wasn't on the screen, was it? Okay. Because I gave him the answers. <laughs> I thought you might have been cheating. Strand two, living in the light or walking in the light. Here's what John said. This is verse five of 1 John. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have koinonia with him, fellowship with him, yet we walk in the darkness, we lie. We're not living in the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have koinonia with one another. 
So these strands are woven together. When we each walk in the light of God's grace and righteousness and ways of living, not in the darkness, not in the mud, not in sin, not in hatred, but in love, then we have fellowship with each other. And, I love this part, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And we talked a lot about that last week. And if you didn't hear that, go to gracetalks.org, gracetalks.org, and you can listen to that again. It was, I think it was helpful instruction. Okay, that's two strands. Gunanija koinonia. Walk in the light, don't walk in the darkness. What was the third one, anybody? Walk in the way of love. Was that Jennifer? No, it was, it was Tamara. Yay, Tamara. <laughs> what a great class. So, walk in the way of love. And this is, a, this is what a lot of this whole letter is going to be about. But here's one of the sentences that John says in this letter that we could repeat over and over. This is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Love is laying down our lives for our brothers. Okay, those three strands will get us a long way in thriving in life. But what John gets to next, that we're going to read the next verse, verse 15 of chapter 2, has to do with some attacks. See, it's one thing to thrive in life if you have no enemies. You know, if, if you're in Ukraine right now, for example, if, if you go on some social media, you can see video of the Vineyard Church in Kiev. And you can see them worshiping, because they broadcast on Facebook live streaming, their worship service. They're hunkered down, probably in a safe building. If you're in Ukraine right now, there may be bombs going off, and you probably are in a basement somewhere or in a subway for protection. You know that you're under attack. John Wimber, major leader in our uh, stream of Christianity, one time said this words, these words, the problem with much of the church is that Christians are doing their best to remain civilians in a time of war. See, if you're in Ukraine, you know you're in a time of war, and you are not out standing where the, where the bullets are blazing, flying by, where the bombs are dropping. You get to safety. Many Christians don't realize that we are in a time of war, and I say that about spiritual war. There is an enemy, and he's gunning for you. And I don't want to be all dark, but I want to be serious. And John has this kind of attitude. Um, do, you, do you think that Adam and Eve in the garden were attacked by Satan? Remember that? He came, deceived, lied. They were deceived by that attack, and that's Satan's main way of attacking is deception, lying. They were deceived enough that they disobeyed God. And all of the trouble we have in the world is because of sin, and they were the first ones to do it. They were the only two. If we were there, I think we would have too. They were attacked. They succumbed to the attack. Now, my belief, as I'm reading this book, 1 John, is that those three strands alone 
our powerful offense for living a thriving life. And the best, offense, uh, best defense, they sometimes say, is a strong offense. That those same three things will enable us to stand up against the attacks of the evil one. And that's some of the stuff we're going to talk about today. But this concept of realizing we are in a war zone, that there are attacks and we better beware so that we live accordingly, so that we can thrive in life but not succumb to the attacks of the evil one, is common in the writings of the New Testament. For example, this should sound familiar, in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, he writes these words, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. <laughs> I'm curious. How many of you saw me open this water bottle and you're like, when's he going to take the drink? <laughs> Here it comes. <sighs> Sorry you don't have one. <laughs> Unless you do. Uh, much better. I'm talking. My mouth gets dry. Paul wrote that. Here's another one. He's writing to the church at Corinth. And he says these words. I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere, sincere and pure devotion to Christ. See, there's attacks and there's danger. And we would be foolish to go stand in the line of fire. We'd be foolish because we'd probably get shot and hurt. Paul writes to Timothy, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith. Do you know if, if you read Christian media, you will discover in the past two years some people who are kind of rock star Christians, maybe big worship leaders who have big albums, who come out and say, you know, I, I, I've walked away, I don't, I don't believe it anymore. That's happened multiple times. People that are authors, people that we thought were leaders in the body of Christ who wrote, you know what, I don't believe it anymore. And they became victims of Satan's attacks. And they're not even following Jesus anymore. They're denying the faith. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. This is real, people. You and I are not completely invulnerable. We, if we do not follow the Lord's plan, could be deceived and led astray. I could be deceived and led astray. If I walk out of fellowship, if I decide to stop walking in the light and start walking in darkness, if I decide to get into not love but hatred, I really would be vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. That's serious, isn't it? Here's another example. Paul writes to Timothy about the temptation of the deception of riches. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Wow, Paul, why are you so heavy, man? Lighten up, bro. He's writing to Timothy who is leading a church that Paul started and saying, Timothy, I'm giving you instruction for how to care for these people, and I want you to know that they need to be warned that if they've set their eyes on riches, they might have trouble. 
He goes on to say, for the love of money, not money, money is neutral. You can be poor and away from God. You can be rich and away from God. The issue is not money, but the love of money, which replaces the love of God, is an issue. So here's one warning. And this would be especially important probably for Americans who are bombarded with advertising to tell us that we need more stuff. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Listen to these. This warning's crazy. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man, man of God, flee from all this, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith. So, folks, you want to thrive in life, right? So today we have to deal with the realities of two attacks that John's going to mention in the second chapter of his letter. So here's the first one. We're now back to John's letter. He's just said, you know, I want you to live in fellowship with me and with God, and our fellowship is the Father and the Son. We are in koinonia. Walk in fellowship. This is where life is found. This is where joy is found. This is where we experience the life of eternity now. And he said, he, his message is, he's in the light, you walk in the light as he is in the light. And if you happen, I write this so you won't sin, if you happen to sin, get back in the light because Jesus, the righteous one, has paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. And if we put our trust in him and we confess our sins, he will forgive them. He'll cleanse us from our righteousness and we'll be back in the light. So walk in the light. And the third thing he said was love. Follow the way of love. It's an old command and a new commandment. We told you before. The Bible told you before. The Old Testament told you before. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So it's an old command, but it's a new command because never before Jesus did we see what it looks like. This is what love is that he lay down his life for his friend, and so also we should lay down our lives for our friend. Live this way. And then he said, children, I'm writing to you. Young men, I'm writing to you. Fathers in the faith, I'm writing to you. This is for all of you. And then his next phrase, we get to this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him for everything in the world the cravings of sinful man. If you have another translation, it says the lust of the flesh, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. What does he mean by do not love the world? I thought God said in his word, Jesus' own words, for God so loved the world. We're not supposed to love the world? No, that's a little confusion of using the same word to mean two things. When Jesus said God so loved the world, he meant the people of this world. When John says, because John is the one that wrote those words, by the way, down for us in his gospel, John 3.16. John is saying don't love this world and its systems and its values and its way of doing things. The more I fall in love with the world, the more I fall out of love with God. Don't love the world. Think, I, I think two, two big words, and he described it, by the way. Lust of the flesh, the cravings of sinful man, lust of the eyes. Lust of the flesh refers to those things that are sensual that we go and grab even though we're not supposed to. Things that do with the senses, the flesh, the body. 
Lust of the eyes is when we look at what we don't have and we want it and we long for it, materialism. So think materialism and sensuality, the lust of the flesh, the, the pride of life, oh man. That even goes back to the first things we were saying about this world system where success is measured in terms of how much I have and how much I accomplish. And if I have to, I'll step on people and use people to get what I want and do what I want. And we said success in the kingdom of God is upside down. Success in the kingdom of God is measured in terms of love. How well I receive and give love from God. How well I receive and give love to you. That's success in the kingdom. It's relational. It's love. I think um, when I think of the, the lust of the flesh, I think of the lust of the eyes and the pride of... I think that simple phrase that the world uses is a verb to party. You know? Remember when you used to party? And, and party means... It doesn't mean, you know, let's have cake and... and It really means some kind of substance, at least alcohol, if not drugs, and some sex that's immoral. The word to party, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Do not love the world. This is the first attack in John's letter here. <laughs> Thanks, Vanessa. There's a lot of it around. I have a television. Does anyone have one of those? You do? That, that box that's kind of the altar in your family room where you gather to worship? <laughs> On my television, most of the programming exalts the ways of the world. I have to work hard or I have to go use some extra software, VidAngel, you've heard of that maybe, or ClearPlay, to filter out. And the movies get really short, by the way, when you do it. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but when I watch a movie where they're doing all the things that the world loves that is directly walking in the darkness... Something in me likes it, and I'm attracted to it. And if I'm not careful, I begin to think I'm missing out, because look at those people. Man, they're beautiful, and they're so happy. They're having so much fun living that way, and here am I, living the straight life. Huh? Do you know what I'm talking about? Do not love the world... Because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. What a warning. We are tempted all the time to love the world. John, you're preaching so mean. If I am in gunanija koinonia with you, if I'm walking in the light, and if I'm following the way of love, I'm not going to fall in love with the world. Because if I'm walking with you, 
close enough that you see what I'm doing and you love me, you're going to say, hold on, Ron. You are heading for danger. You better stop. I was listening to Chuck Swindoll. How many of you know the name Chuck Swindoll? Great old preacher. He's in Dallas now, used to be in Fullerton. On the radio a lot. He talked about a time when he was with some friends and they were doing a tour. It was 1976. It was the Bicentennial. If you can believe it, people were alive in the 70s. It was a while ago. And he took his, they, they, they just decided to do a walking tour and they were in New York City. Now, in 1976, New York City was not like it is now. You can walk in Manhattan now. You couldn't in 76. So here are these Californians walking around, and they come up to a place, and they're just walking around, and there's a police officer, puts his hand up and goes, you guys aren't from around here, are you? And they go, no, we're from California. And he goes, okay, don't go any farther. Behind me is not safe. You don't know where you are, and if you keep going, you're going to get hurt. Now, what's... Was that police officer trying to use his authority to flaunt it? Because I got the badge, so I'm just going to boss some people around. Was he saying, I don't want you to have a good time in New York? No, he was protecting them from danger. Listen, when God's word says, don't do this, it's because he is loving us. And we need to sometimes, by faith, believe that what he said not to do would hurt us. See, Eve didn't believe that. He said, don't eat that fruit, it will kill you. And Satan said, no, that's not true, that's really good fruit. Look at how good it looks, it's going to taste good, it's going to make you wise, and it's going to make you like God. You should eat it. And she thought, okay, I'm going to listen to this snake rather than God who walks with me and loves me. That's how all sin works. She had the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. She ate the fruit, and it tasted good going down, but it soon became a master and killed the human race. Listen, whatever it is that you look at and you think, I know God said not to do that, but I'm sure God must be mistaken. It couldn't be that bad because it looks so good and I so want it. I want, here's what I do. I think that thing that looks like candy is actually poison with a candy wrapper on it. And I'd be a fool to take it. It'll probably taste good going down, but the damage will be intense. So I want to talk you through what I call the pathway to sin that destroys. This is good thinking, I think. This will help you. I hope it helps you. I'm going to use James chapter 1, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but here's the pathway to destruction. Each one is tempted when he, by his own evil desire, is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire or lust has conceived, conceived like giving birth, like sperm and seed coming together, conceived. After lust, desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So here's how it goes. You can watch this. This might help you if you have found yourself led away by the destructiveness of sin. We all have 
normal healthy desires that God has given us. I think immediately of sex because that's a big sin problem. We all, if you are a healthy adult human, you probably have sexual desires. And that came from God because if you didn't know, God created and designed sex. It was his idea. And I think, yay, God, good job. <laughs> but very quickly, my desire for what is good in the context for which God created it can quickly become a desire for that which God forbids. Hello? Has anyone ever desired what God forbids? Is it just me? So I am now stepping down the path, but I haven't sinned and I haven't wreaked any destruction. But when my desire for that which God forbids is allowed to conceive, suddenly lust, which means uncontrolled, passionate, a burning for that which God forbids, begins to grow, and I can contemplate the thing that I know God said not to do. I can look at it like Eve did with the fruit. I can think about it. I can think how good it would be. It can't be that bad. And I'm in danger now. I still haven't sinned. But at some point in the pathway to sin that destroys, my desire for that which is forbidden that is turned into lust turns into a decision that says, I'm going to do it as soon as I get the opportunity. It just became sin. See, you always have to have, you are, you are a king, you are a queen, you have a kingdom, and it's your ability to choose. And when I use my ability to choose to say, I'm gonna do it, I've now sinned. But I haven't given full birth to it, but Jesus said, remember, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery within your heart. The moment I say, when I get the chance, I'm going to do it, my lust has turned into sin, and my decision has got me in trouble. I can still back out of that, but I'm in danger. And then when I finally bite the fruit, oh, Lord, then all hell breaks loose. Now, listen, if you are aware of the pathway to destructive sin, you can be smart enough to stop it early on. And I can tell you this, the longer you wait, the harder it gets to stop. When it's desire for that which is forbidden, if you are walking in the light as he is in the light and you are in fellowship with each other and you are living the way of love, you will say, oh Lord, come and help me. I'm desiring that which you forbid and I trust you. You might even tell a friend, listen, I'm struggling right now. I'm thinking about doing something that I know I shouldn't do, and I want to do it. Will you help me? And you know what happens? It never turns into lust. You have that little candle flame flickering, and you go like this. It's done. And you move on, and you're free, and you're back in the light, and you're back in joy, and you're back in koinonia, gunanija, fellowship with God, the Father, and the Son, and with each other. You're walking in the light, and there's great joy. But if you don't do that, then it starts burning. And that little, that little candle flame now has some wood around it. And it's starting to get hot. And you feel the heat. And you're thinking about it. And you're looking at it. Man, if you're there, 
Get back in the light and get back in fellowship and get back in the way of love and pour some water on that fire before it turns into a fire that burns you. You cannot play with fire without getting burned. You will get burned. Folks, I, when I was thinking about this, paused a moment and I very quickly thought of six people in my life who are pastors. Intimate connection with me who have all fallen into serious, destructive sin. Pastors. This is definitely the reality that there are attacks on people in the body of Christ. John says, don't love the world. What time is it? Yeah, I'll read the next second. Well, how are you guys doing? Okay, because it'd be fun to finish this chapter, right? Okay. Dear children, here's the second attack. This is the last hour. First attack, the temptation to love the ways of this world and the, the values of this world. Listen, you may need to monitor what you watch on TV and in movies. Because if you are starting to put your affection toward the world, you're starting to get in danger. And the end result is ugly. Sin that destroys you, destroys your family, destroys your friends, destroys your reputation, destroys people's ability to trust you. God, help us that we walk in the light as he is in the light. Dear children, this is the last hour. As you've heard that, there are, that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. The word antichrist is only used in 1 John and 2 John, by the way. It doesn't show up in the Revelation, in case you're curious. Isn't that interesting? Antichrist, two words together. Anti means against, or it means in place of. Christ, of course, means Messiah, the anointed one. John goes on to describe, and he'll mention this several times in the coming verses, that there are those who are opposing Jesus and offering an alternate Jesus. And they were in John's day in the first century, and they've continued in every generation to our day. Sometimes they proclaim to be Christians. In fact, John in his day could already say they were one time part of the church, and they've left the church, and now they're proclaiming this false gospel. Verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. You have the Holy Spirit. You, anointing is interesting because it's the same word as the anointed one. It's just another form. The Christ, the anointed one, you have an anointing like Christ. You have the Holy Spirit of God in you. When you put your faith in Jesus, God himself, the Holy Spirit, came into you to give you truth, to guide you in truth, to give you the ability to walk in discernment. And when you're walking in koinonia, Fellowship with the Father and the Son. You're walking in fellowship with each other. We're opening the word of God together. We're worshiping together. We're sharing in life together. We're working together. We're sharing our resources. We're doing life in communion. When you're living that way, you're walking in a flow of the river of the spirit of life that gives you authority and power to see evil and to see deception and not be taken in by it. But when you think, I don't need the body of Christ. I just need me and Jesus. Common right now common you know since i started staying home watching church on zoom i noticed there's a lot of good preachers out there i think i'll just forget the body of christ and watch i don't recommend it you're, you're gonna miss out on good in egypt 
<laughs> oh, Ron, now you're meddling. Sorry. You have an anointing, the spirit of truth. I don't write to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it. And no lie comes from the truth. Who's the liar? The man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. This will come out more as we read uh, the next coming weeks and you read on your own. But just really two important questions. Who's Jesus and what do you think of him? Who's Jesus and what do you think of him? John goes over and over and he's going to tell us Jesus is human and he's God. He is God who became human and took our sins away. And listen, those two things are crucial. When someone comes to you to try to distort your view of Jesus and tell you, well, he was God in spirit, but he was never man. Or, the more popular one right now, great teacher, clearly not God, was kind of confused, thought, he would, thought the kingdom was coming, but it didn't, obviously. He was crucified, and then, you know, I don't know about this resurrection thing, whatever that probably faked. If you start to believe that, I have friends that fall into this trap, you're going to be in serious trouble. If Jesus was not God, then he couldn't have died for my sins. Only a man could not pay the penalty for my sins. If he was only God and not man, he couldn't have died. To die for my sins... Jesus had to be God who became man, who took upon him the sins of the world and took them away and raised himself by the Father and the Spirit from the dead, victorious over hell, over the grave, over sin and over death, so that if we put our faith in him, we too will walk in this newness of life where we're free from our sin and we enter into a life of eternity. And we can't have that if we don't have the right Jesus. It's, it's the good news that cannot be twisted. So there's just two attacks here. That one, by the way, would be taken care of by walking in the light, walking in fellowship, and walking in the way of love. That kind of brought us to the end of the chapter, and thank you for your patience with the time. Um, let's stand together. Folks, my prayer is that you and me, you and I, we together, would know the truth of God's word so that we can make disciples of people everywhere. Everything I just taught you, you can go and teach someone else. You can open up your Bible and sit down with your friend and say, I'd like to tell you what I just learned on Sunday. Let's read the first two chapters. It's only one page, maybe two, of 1 John. You have it in you to teach the Bible, and there's power in the word of God. You have the Holy Spirit. You have an anointing. That is, if you've given your life to Jesus. If you are in this place today and you have need to offer your life to God so that he can give you his life, don't delay. Today is the day of salvation. And if you walk away from the day of salvation, you might harden your heart so that tomorrow you won't listen. Listen today. Do not harden your heart. Please do not harden your heart. Please, I plead with you, don't harden your heart against the Lord. Because the day comes if you harden your heart when you can't make it soft again.
And that's a frightening place to be. But today, the Lord is softening your heart. Just turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I give you my life. Wash away my sins. Bring me into fellowship with you and your family. Help me to walk in the light as you're in the light. And help me to love all those around me as you love me. We hope you've enjoyed this message. This weekly podcast is available on our website, gracevcf.org where you can learn more about Grace Vineyard and our vision for people everywhere to know and worship God.